resources? Or is it the barrenness we see today, the wars and unending farming? If we all had one story, would it ring out with sounds of joy, dance and laughter? Or would we struggle to breathe with the knee of injustice pressing on our neck? If we all had one story, would our protests be heard? Or would we run to dodge the bullets from governments without a care. If we all had one story, would it be woven with threads of inequality, injustice, and suffering? If we all had one story, would it lead us through a shared trauma into a single voice of Black Lives Matter, ringing from Africa to the UK, from Brazil to the Caribbean, from the USA to Europe, if we all had one story? if but we have one story and it should be told for our beginning was way before their discovery our beginning was way before slavery before we were colonized before segregation before apartheid the very birth of mankind started within our story education, civilization, growth, and prosperity. We have one story, and it is of greatness, of dignity, of wealth, and endless resources. We have one story, and it rings out with the sounds of joy, of dance and laughter. We have one story, and from a moment, it became a movement, ringing out in a single voice of Black Lives Matter from Africa to the UK, from Brazil to the Caribbean, from the USA to Europe, we are one. Black people everywhere from a single story, sharing a global history to be embraced and, and celebrated and endorsed and accepted. One story. If we... Hello. Yeah. Three minutes ago. Yep. Okay. okay. Hi, everyone, um, and welcome to Black Unity, The Road to Our Success, an exciting media panel debate on our global shared history and the way forward for cultural awareness and economic strength. My name is Natasha, and I co-host the Hustle Israel podcast. Just first, some quick housekeeping. Um, we're going to aim to wrap things up um, at eight o'clock um, with uh, the main plan of what we've got on today. But we're also gonna leave 30 minutes after that for any Q&A from you as our audience. So if you do have any questions, please use the Q&A function on your screen rather than the chat function. So thank you for that. We've got a packed agenda, but before we get started, I want to very briefly introduce you to our guest panelists. We are, just check, sorry, just checking on mute. 
Um, we are thrilled to have Charmaine Simpson, who is CEO of the Black History Studies. We've got Dele Ogun, father of the Fatherland Group. Lavinia Stennett, CEO of the Black Curriculum. Robin Walker, the Black History Man. And Epeke Omolu, founder of the African History Project. Now I've sent you all emails from the beginning of this week with brief bios on all of our guests and how you can find out a bit more about what they do, who they are and what their work is. So please check your emails and get to know them a bit more there. Okay, so let's kick things off with a question for my co-host, Elo. Elo, can you give us some background as to how um, the idea of the webinar and topic came about? Yeah, thank you, Tash. Um, so as we're all aware, uh, when George Floyd was uh, murdered, there were protests uh, um, around the world. And most people understood that George Floyd's murder was a metaphor for black people everywhere. Um, but you can imagine I was pretty surprised and shocked and horrified when I found out that some black people were not getting it at all. Uh, they felt that uh, you know African-Americans needed to forget about slavery. It was 400 years ago. And they needed to sort of you know, get themselves up by the bootstraps and, and, and carry on and soldier on. And, um, and therefore I was so upset that I, I did a video and my video had two messages. And the first message was clearly trying to sort of explain that there's a disconnect. Uh, there's, a, there's a lack of understanding. We need to go back and understand the fact that we're all George Floyd, whether you're in Africa or you're in the Caribbean or you're in Brazil or the USA or the UK, we are all George Floyd. Uh, and we're all George Floyd because we have systems and institutions on our neck in the same way that George Floyd had that knee on his neck. And the second message that I was trying to portray in the video was that we need to come behind this uh, understanding and we need to shape a vision for ourselves. So it's coming together as a collective in order to get that knee off our necks. So that's where this all started from. It was a message and this is, I guess, a webinar for all black people, for all of us to come behind a shared understanding of our history in order to move forward. Wow, thanks Elo. So this theme around connecting the dots and we are one was a very strong emphasis as the months went by from June. Um, we, we have a podcast and Elo and myself began to invite guests from um, our African-American community, our Af African UK community to share their views on what black unity means. We wanted to expand on that today and share some more experiences with you from the diaspora around the world. So what we've done is we've captured the voice of five brothers and sisters from South Africa, the Caribbean, North America and the UK in a short video. So we wanted to make this event about black people everywhere across the world, not just the UK. So let's hear from them now. Hello, my name is Tecla Fontenard and I'm from the beautiful island of St. Lucia in the Caribbean. It is my pleasure, it is my honor to 
share a little insight on the topic of black unity, the road to success. For my brothers and sisters, I want to say um, hi and um, I wish we can have a great time speaking on this topic and I look towards the future on, on how this topic will evolve. A little bit about, reflecting a little bit about my education, um, what I remember in my early childhood when I was in school. I remember that a lot of our examples, a lot of illustrations, a lot of our textbooks were based on what I would say was not, they were not really pushing black history or even Caribbean identity in school. Um, so a lot of our books, our examples, we use names like Sally, like Jane. I remember one of our favorite poems that we played were, was Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, we used to play Sally go round the sun, Sally go round the moon, Sally go round the tree, what on Sunday afternoon. Oh dear fellow Africans from across the globe, my name is Kashani Manamel. I come to you from the beautiful city of Pretoria in South Africa, from the tip of the African continent, the cradle of humankind. It is a real pleasure to be connecting with my brothers, sisters, fathers and mothers from across the globe. At school, the history that we learned in South Africa was obviously meant to sustain and beautify apartheid or apartheid as it is known around the world. There was little, if anything, about King Shakazulu or other heroes and heroines from the African continent. Everything was about Europe and its conquest around the world. So what's going on, people? My name is Quincy. I'm a stand-up comedian. I am representing uh, the UK via Barbados, but originally started my journey in the motherland of Africa. Um, I suppose today's event is 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 so so important, and um, is really taking time to really look at myself as a as a black man uh, living in the UK and my connection with my brothers and sisters all around the world, around the globe. <clears throat> and I think that growing up in the UK, um, and being in the education system. Uh, for me, learning about my history and my culture was literally, I kind of describe it, zilch. Hi guys, it's Cherie. I am coming to you from the beautiful United States in the warm and sunny state of South Carolina. Um, it's my pleasure to join with my brothers and sisters from across the globe. Um, for the first question about history. I most certainly think here in the United States, how we learned history is definitely from the perspective of the colonizer or from the effects of colonization. Um, for example, slavery. Um, your textbook version of slavery that you get here in the U.S. is kind of just like, well, slavery was 400 years. And then Abraham Lincoln came along. The Civil War happened. The North beat the South. And then the slaves were free and lived happily ever after. That's the type of perspective that you get on black history in the United States. Or another one, Martin Luther King gave a speech and all was well. That's exactly how it is in books. Hello, my name is Martins and I'm based in Lagos, Nigeria. Nigeria being the most populous black uh, country on earth and a lot of Nigerians are everywhere in the diaspora and one in five or one in six black person anywhere in the world is likely to be a Nigerian here. Yeah. 
uh, talking about our beautiful history, you know, the history that we learned or were taught uh, growing up in schools. Uh, that's just the history of European activities in Africa. So an average African, an average Nigerian knows about the story of Lord Ligard, Miris Lesso, and what have you, but the truth uh, behind uh, the Benin massacre of 1897, uh, how the whole of Africa is suffering from the uh, Berlin Congress of 1884, how imaginary lines were just drawn by a few white blocks in Berlin and, you know, cut us into pieces without considering our tongues. And we don't, on the average, know the true stories of people like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Booker T. Washington, the African, you know, scholars. I believe another word was taught, taught to us about history was a lie. Um, and I don't think it was what I learned at the time in school about my history was not really grounded in Caribbean-ness or in Caribbean culture or in true Caribbean history. Um, one of the most poignant things they taught in Caribbean history, and I still remember it now, is St. Lucian history. Um, they said St. Lucia was discovered by a Spaniard, a, a European sailor called Christopher Columbus, who was traveling from India, going back to England, and he discovered the Caribbean islands. That, that what was said, Christopher Columbus discovered us. I think that really was a lie, um, because Christopher Columbus met early inhabitants here. He met the Kalinagos, he met the, Af the Arak Arawak Indians, he met Caribbeanians, he met the original people, say. So he didn't discover us, it's all a lie. I learned about the Tudors, I learned about Henry VIII, and then you find out that Henry VIII fought all his wives, and if he didn't get his way, he used to chop off their heads. Right, and uh, basically, that's a pimp in my eyes. Um, I, I learned about the war, the first two wars, but I think the most important thing that what I did learn, didn't I see anybody of colour? The, the, the most people I learned of colour who fought in the war were Gurkhas, right? But I know that my dad served in the army. I really believe that connecting with African people across the world is really great. I believe the connectivity should be there. We should have that kind of oneness. I had the, the pleasure of visiting South Africa and Zambia in 2008. I had a yearning, a desire to, to visit um, the motherland all the time. And then, of course, everywhere I travel, African people would come and ask me, but which country are you from? Which country in Africa? I would have say, you know. Were it not for Africa, uh, Africa, Atlantic slavery, I would have been African, but you know, I'm actually from the Caribbean. <laughs> Growing up, we were never really connected with our fellow brothers and sisters from the African continent or the diaspora. There were travel restrictions and interconnection or connection with our fellow uh, African brothers and sisters was really limited or even non-existent. It is therefore not surprising to hear today a black South African saying, I'm going to Africa, meaning traveling to other parts of the African continent, as if South Africa is disconnected to the rest of the continent. I am a an avid traveler, so I think I connect with other Black people well because I'm open-minded and I know to be respectful when I go into other countries because they may not be exactly like mine, but I tend to look at other Black people like, hey, they're Black, I'm Black, let's connect. We need to start, uh, you know, working together Black unity is needed. We don't need to start, you know, competing. We should collaborate. We should be organized, and we should really, really. We have the intellect. We have the numbers. We have uh, what we need to be where we should be. And um, 
uh, we have this vision that we need to share together. We need to come together and share this vision globally from the Caribbean, wherever you find yourself, black is unity, black is power. Mama Africa is calling. Black unity is not only important, but is warranted. It is long overdue. It requires unity of the mind, unity of the soul, and unity of the way we live our lives. We require unity and interconnection because black unity is our humanity. Wow. So thank you to Kashani, Martins, Tekla, Shuri, and Quincy. There's such a powerful message in there. We need to do more to connect the dots and get to know each other. But before we move on to our next item, I'd like to ask a very special guest, AD, who's dialing in all the way from Brazil via Germany, to tell us a bit more about Brazil um, and the South American element of our us as a people. So AD is CEO of Trace TV. And um, in light of all the recent events that have, that, have, that have happened in Brazil, we're understanding that Black Lives Matter as a movement is starting to kick off there. So we want to connect and hear from you, AD. Um, welcome. Please share with us your views. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, I really like the video. I saw a little bit about this video and I was like missing the Brazilian Brazilians there. And I want to start just saying why we don't normally have black Brazilians talking to people in the diaspora. And uh, it's because unfortunately we, uh, I was talking to Elo the other day and I told her uh, that we do have a curse in our country. And the curse that we have that we used to say is the Portuguese language because nobody understand us, nobody. It's a country that we were locked after the slavery in a way that nobody could understand what was happening in our country. We have the biggest, uh, the biggest diaspora happening after the, during the, the time of the transatlantic uh, slavery. Uh, five million black people were transported to Brazil, 10 times more than United States. And in that country, we live the horrors of the longest period of slavery in the world, in the recent story of slavery in the world. So it was the last country to abolish slavery. So after that, uh, the, the abolition of slavery, uh, we had a republic that actually was implemented in that country in order to hold black people behind and uh, most people don't understand that part of history when the eugenics movement, I don't know if everybody is familiar with this name, uh, the eugenics movement, it was a, a movement that was called a pseudoscience, it's a pseudoscience that was created in order to say that black people, they were less civilized and therefore they shouldn't get education. So black people were not allowed to get into schools. We were not allowed to have land. We were not allowed, this was until ninety. Uh, 40s or so that people were not allowed. So when you see a favela, when people are talking about the favelas, this was exactly what the Brazil, the Brazilian government said in 1911 that black people would disappear once they were married with white people in order to disappear with the, the curse of being black. Because um, 
the, the evangelical church and the Catholic church, both of them, they played a big role on saying that black people were uh, not able to understand education, such and such, totally different, different than what happened in other countries. What I'm saying is not something from my mind. I'm telling you guys that that's the reason why we in Brazil, we have a big curse because we speak Portuguese and nobody understands what we're saying. Brazilian Portuguese is even more... Uh, different. Uh, somebody just wrote him the whitening principle in Brazil. That's called the whitening principle. We had this idea. Uh, it was implemented by the white people and they did this for a long period of time into which to have any kind of possibilities to get good jobs and a better life uh, style, you would probably have to mix yourself with the white person. Otherwise, uh, you would be totally uh, you will be totally ousted from the society. So um, uh, Brazil was the country that uh, never actually recognized black people as having uh, good jobs and giving us the opportunities. We never created a black middle class. Uh, it was always about what the whites actually were talking to the whole world. Is a they, they said a, it's a racial democracy. They said it's a racial democracy, it's a racial, and it was never. And in the last couple of years, the last 20 years, Brazil started affirmative actions to bring people to universities for the first time. Uh, we have more black people coming to universities, so black people started to come. And then the, the white Brazilians, and I will tell you guys, beware the white Brazilians, okay? Beware them because when they tell you something about Brazil, they are not being honest about anything. They, they know exactly, is the country where most of the uh, cleaning ladies are black people receiving less than $200 a month in 2020. That's exactly how Brazil is today. More, uh, we have one black kid being killed in Brazil every 23 minutes. And we have more than 87% of the people that are killed with gunshots in Brazil are black. So in the last 10 years, we killed half a million black kids between 15 and 29 years old. So please, this is not the carnival country. There's nothing fun about this country. You should come and see with your own eyes what's going on in this country. So in the last 20 years, we started to, to go to universities because they said affirmative action was okay. The white Brazilians, they didn't like it at all. They started to start, stop funding universities in order not to give black people opportunities to get to college. And uh, uh, what happened is that now uh, after George Floyd, white people are trying to say, yeah, let's do this and that. And uh, on the 20th of November is the day of the, um, is the day of the black consciousness in Brazil. And the day before, a man was killed with the camera, somebody recorded, was killed inside the supermarket Carrefour. Carrefour, he was killed. It's not the first time. We had already a lot of black people being killed inside Carrefour because they just arrest us and kill us for nothing. So as I told you in the last couple of years, half a million young kids, young black Brazilians were killed in uh, by gunshot in the country. So. Uh, we have a systemic racism impl implemented in this country. And I'm not the CMO, the, C the CMO, uh, the CEO of Trace, I'm the CMO. Uh, and 
I, I'm one of those uh, black people that I cannot say that I'm fortunate, but I had the opportunity to study abroad coming from a black family that was very conscious about this because even the racism worked in the way that was so big that most, I'm telling you, most of the black people in Brazil, they don't even say that what's going on in Brazil is racist. Because you have actually to, to teach a lot of black people about what's going on because it was not, we were not able to get educated about what was going on. So this, this idea of racial democracy is still a reality in the mind of a lot of black Brazilians. So you imagine having a country where black people are not aware about their unconscious, about what is to be black person in the country. So um, one of the things that I would like to talk to you guys about is when you don't see black Brazilians in discussions and panels, remember what's going on in our country because we leave the horrors of what was left over after slavery and nobody wanted to discuss with us because nobody understand our language. Nobody understand what we're saying. We are 56% of the population. We are 120 million people. There is no country, none of your countries. After Nigeria is the biggest black country in the world. But we need you guys to understand what's going on in Brazil. It's not a fun country. Beware the white Brazilians and be very cautious with them, with everything they say, because nothing they say, they're being truthful to what they say. Brazil is the country where the most enslaved killed and shot people today. It was four days ago that a black guy was killed. We even have a black kid, five years old. The mom was working as a, a cleaning lady for a, for a woman and she, uh, she shoved the kid into the elevator and the kid died because the kid jumped from the, from the, the 13th floor. It was a couple of months ago in the beginning of the pandemic or black kids being killed just because they're carrying like umbrellas that look like guns and the police just shot them. Please, uh, it's not a carnival country. It's not funny and we need to talk more about Brazil, but I'm very gl glad that I'm being able to talk. Thank you, Elo. Thank you, uh, all you guys, to listen a little bit about the Brazilian history. I could actually do a, another, another conversation with you guys. Uh, I've been talking to several people in the country. I'm one of the only Black people that go on TV to talk about uh, systemic racism. So you just guys, you guys can believe that I received that threats. I received everything because of the governor of this, this person that is there now. And uh, the last point that I want to put, you see how evil uh, some white people in Brazil are. This new president, we have a foundation like, um, like NAACP, this uh, organization. We had an organization from the, actually from the government to talk about black people. But you guys, you see how evil some some of these white people from the right they are in Brazil, that they put, they put a black man that is against the black movement in this position. And he is piercing apart, turning apart this foundation and putting a lot of people that don't like the black movement in this place. He even said that Brazil, in Brazil, there is no racism and everything that we're saying is me, me, me and victimism. So uh, you guys, please watch Brazil, talk to us, listen to what we are saying, listen to the, the widening process of in Brazil and how they 
didn't allow us to have education in the favelas. When you see a favela, how strong is the favela? It's a, it's a policy to keep us away from the city and it's nothing fun about the favelas. There's nothing fun about that. It was a policy implemented of this right to the land. Thank you very much. I'm so sorry for being so quick, but um, we can talk later in another day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, AD. I'm, uh, I'm still taking it all in. Um, thank you so much. Please stay on if, if, if you can. Um, we've got some Q&A later if you can, you can be involved in that. But um, we're going to move on swiftly um, on to Dele. Dele Ogun, who is the uh, founder of the Fatherland Group. Um, Dele, you've recently written a book called A Slave Ship Called Jesus. Um, and I understand that this book provides an accurate and factual account of the events of the last 400 years to date. So what would you say are the key salient points of these historical facts with a central theme of being on a, on a shared history which kind of binds us together? How do, we, how do we connect the dots? Well, thank you. I could have listened to AD all day long uh, regarding Brazil. What a fantastic uh, exposition. Uh, uh, I've prepared a paper uh, which is titled the African Reconnection, and it is based on uh, the contents of the book, uh, A Slave Ship Called Jesus. I'm gonna open with a prediction. This year, 2020, is going to prove a defining year for we Africans, by which I mean the Africans of the Caribbean, the Africans of the Americas, and now we hear of Brazil, and the Africans uh, of the homeland. When coronavirus hits, the fear for our homeland was for an apocalypse. On account of the poor state of the healthcare and the population densities in the cities and the townships. In the middle of that lockdown is when George Floyd was heinously murdered in public view. That recalled to consciousness the darkest days of the experience of the Africans in America. That incident sparked the emergence of the Black Lives Matters movement and the mass demonstrations which forced high-level discussions in all the places where we are now found about race relations and the teaching of African history. The high point of those demonstrations was the event in Bristol, the toppling of the slave, the statue of the slave trader, Edward Corston. That was a powerfully symbolic moment. And then came the SARS movement for the benefit of our brother in Brazil. That's the special anti-robbery squad, uh, uh, a unit of the Nigerian police that was brutalizing our own people. The demonstrations to end SARS spilt over 
into the diaspora. When we said black lives must matter in the homeland as well as abroad. Only for the government of President Buhari to deploy African soldiers to callously murder African youth who are demonstrating peacefully in our homeland against police brutality. This killing of Africans by African leaders in our homeland with foreign-made guns and bullets takes us all the way back to the beginning of our troubles and our dispersal 600 years ago. The purpose of this discussion this evening is for us to join the dots between the past and the present and between our diaspora and our homeland. We do this at a time when the political legacy of that interaction between Europe and Africa, which began around 1420, is seeing waves of young Africans looking for ways to leave the homeland for the lands which our forebears were taking to forcefully. Whether through so-called visa lottery schemes, or more poignantly, by all manner of seagoing vessels across the Mediterranean Sea at the cost of tragic loss of life and human rights abuses along the way. It was in the beginning of the lockdown in March that I started writing this new book on the African slave trade and its abolition. I have to say that but for this lockdown, this book was at best five years away. You see, the books which I had read about the slave trade raised several questions which I set myself the task of answering. These were the questions. What was the role of the church in the slave trade? What is the real story behind the narrative of Africans selling their own people? What was the real reason for abolition? Why did colonization follow immediately on the back of abolition? And why is the European slave trade more spoken about than the Arab one? Let me start with that last question. The shortest version of the answer is Christopher Columbus. You see, it was his so-called discoveries of the Caribbean islands and the Americas and the European genocide that followed against the native Indian indigents, which intensified the demand for our people as new lands were taken over by the Europeans and the indigents of those lands were wiped out, a boundless capacity to bring in our people to replace the enslaved native Indians was opened up in a way that was not open 
to the Arab slavers in Eurasia. The Arabs had no new lands that they were colonizing. Such of our people as they were taken in were being absorbed in their existing lands. But the Europeans, led by Columbus's expeditions, were opening up new lands. They called it the New World. And as they depopulated those places with genocide, they created unlimited capacity for our peoples to be taken in there. What is the real story behind the narrative of Africans selling their own people? It was the explosion in European need for enslaved labor, which I've just explained, which drove the supply of our, Af of our people for enslavement in those lands. Let me quote the words of Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger in the course of the abolition debates in Parliament. This is what he said. Alas, we made human beings the subject of commerce, that the supply must accommodate itself to the consumption. It was not from wars then that the slaves were chiefly procured. They were obtained in proportion as they were wanted. If a demand for slaves arose, a supply was forced in one way or the other. The principal means for procuring the supply of our people for this purpose was through the instigation of proxy wars by the supply of weaponry to local leaders. We saw the modern parallel in the Lekki massacre with our soldiers using weapons and bullets made abroad to kill our own people at Lekki on 20th of October, of October 2020. This is what fed the narrative that Africans were always killing themselves. But it was the pouring of guns into Africa to stoke the supplies for the trade, which accounted for this troubled state. Before they came, our lands were peaceful. Why? Because they were bountiful. We had not exhausted our resources. We had no shortages. We did not have the harsh winters that had to be survived. Even now we have not exhausted our resources. So how can it be that we were always killing ourselves? I move to the next question. The central question. What was the role of the church in the slave trade? You see, this is the big theme in this new book, which is reflected in the title, A Slave Ship Called Jesus. Because I'll have you know that there was a slave ship called the Jesus of Lubeck. It was owned by Queen Elizabeth I. It was chartered to Sir John Hawkins, 
by the queen, then queen, for his second enslaving mission to our coast. You see, the colonization of the Caribbean and the Americas and the enslavement of native Indians and then our people to replace the native Indians once they had been wiped out was all done under license. Whose license? The license of the popes in the Vatican. Express license to reduce these peoples they were called heathens and Saracens. Saracens were the Muslims. The heathens were those who were not Christian, our people, to reduce them to perpetual slavery. This is why even the church owned enslaved Africans and plantations on which they were worked. Our fourth question. What was the real reason for abolition? Well, you can see that with this church so involved in slavery, abolition could not have been driven by any moral considerations. Certainly not at the institutional level. Similarly, the Industrial Revolution, it came as did the Age of Enlightenment but neither led to any rethink on the slave trade and slavery. What forced the rethink was war. First in America, and then most significantly in Haiti. You see in America, the American Declaration of Independence of 1776 gave rise to a new need for our people who were enslaved there. That new need was to fight and die for the slavers. It was the British who first felt the need to enlist our people to fight on their side because of course they were fighting away from home. How many people could they ship across to fight the American rebels? So they made a pledge to our enslaved peoples in the Africans, in America. Fight for us. When we win, we will free you. Now, the fundamental means by which slavery was sustained was this. They knew our people were physically and mentally strong. The only way that they could keep our people in that condition was to observe one principle, never teach them how to use guns. As soon as that pledge was broken by the British pledge, the writing was on the wall for the end of slavery. So the Americans then, having observed the British break the pledge, decided to match the bargain and said to those who they, of our people, who they kept in slavery, fight for us, when we win, we will free you. That was the beginning. The abolition was accelerated by the rebellion of enslaved Africans in Haiti, led by 
to song Louverture. There's a new biography of Toussaint that's out appropriately titled The Black Spartacus. After defeating the French slavers on the island, he defeated the Spanish slavers of the Dominican, Dominican Republic to abolish slavery right across the island. He then defeated the British army. And finally, his African army defeated Napoleon uh, in 1804. Lastly, why did colonization follow abolition? You see, our people's victory in 1804 and the massacre of the French which followed forced the pace of the thinking on abolition. And that's what led to uh, America and Britain passing the abolition of the Slave Trade Act in 1807. But it was never the plan that emancipated Africans should now with the experience of modern warfare should live in a multiracial society. So what was the solution? To ship them off to where? In Britain's case, to Sierra Leone. In America's case, to Liberia. For the Americans, Liberia was a final solution. For the British, Sierra Leone was but the first step, a stepping stone towards colonization of the whole of Africa to replace the colonies in America, which they had just lost. That's how we join our dots. That's how we reconnect our dispersed peoples. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Dilly. Um, anytime I listen to that, I, I always learn something new. And uh, we heard from uh, the video uh, before uh, the fact that, you know, we were taught about, um, you know, the Tudors and Humpty Dumpty and all these things that we were taught about. So my first question to our panelists, and thank you very much for your patience. I'm going to start with Robin. Uh, Robin, if you don't mind. So why was this history? Why has this been hidden? Why are we just hearing about this now? Is it deliberate? Has it been deliberately hidden for, from us? Was there, is there a plan to keep this away for any reason? Um, so question to Robin. Um, you don't know what you don't know, unfortunately. So if I was to ask the question, to the people listening. Is it African culture to make glass? Is it African culture to have glass windows? Is it African culture to drink tea, to drink coffee, to collect and read manuscripts, to get inoculated, i.e. vaccinated, to use antibiotics? Is it African culture to have indoor baths and toilets? Is it African culture to sail the high seas? Is it African culture to take synthetic medicine? Now, depending on how much black history you know, if you know the history, you will know the answer to all of those questions is yes. But if you didn't know, you don't know. And the problem is most of us not only don't know, but we don't know that we don't know. Just to give you an example, um, dealing with manuscripts, um, it has recently been discovered that in the Malian city of Timbuktu, 700,000 manuscripts dating back to medieval times 
have been preserved by African families. And there are 60 families with book collections. And when you add up the number of books they have, it's 700,000. And some of the poems that we, they have in those collections are poems dedicated to drinking tea. Now, did we know that that's how we were carrying on back in the day? And as I said, that's an example of if you don't know, you don't know. Okay. And do you think it was hidden, <laughs> hidden from us? Um, Lavinia, what do you think? Was it deliberately, deliberately hidden from us or was it there? And, and, and like Robin said, we just simply don't know or has it been kept away? I think the Eurocentric order that we're currently living in is structured in such a way that knowledge is deliberately hidden in order to preserve a certain social order um, that enables racism, it enables inequalities to be perpetuated in society. And I think it is a deliberate act um, to wipe away someone's history, um, keeps them out of the know of who they are. It keeps them in a certain place in society. And without that knowledge, it's really difficult for us to change that structure. So I think it is very deliberate um, in order to maintain and preserve what is currently existing. And that is racial inequality, economic inequality that affects black people specifically across the globe. Thank you, great. Um, so we always have this sort of discussion. It's, it's not about the last 600 years. It's not about slavery. You know, we were like, like Dele said, you know, uh, Africa was a bountiful, wonderful place. So what's the relevance of the last four to 600 years compared to our older history? I mean, we know we were the first people on this planet. So what's the relevance? What should we be focusing on? Should we worry about the last 400 years or should we go all the way back or are they serving different purposes? So Shemaine, do you wanna give a bit of a flavor on the last 400 years in context of our overall history? Thank you for um, thank you for introducing me. So you mentioned earlier that we know that we were the first people. You assume that we do. Not everybody does. And we got to come when we're talking about history. We have to assume that not everybody knows the history, as that Robin was saying earlier, that not everybody knows the history. So when we teach Black history, we start from the beginning, and it's very relevant to talk about our history from the past because every day we're making history, and it has a relevance to what we're doing today. And our history is not. And we shouldn't be thinking about history of the past. History, we're making history as we speak on this webinar today, having this discussion, having this debate, um, not just doing it in Black History Month, we're doing it throughout the whole year. We are making history. And oftentimes people say to me that it's very important that we have to learn our history. And because you can't be inspired by your past if you don't know your past. You can't be learn about your past that would, and look at what we can take into our future. And we come from the standpoint that our, learning our black history will inspire our black future. What did we do in the past? What, did we, what great things did we contribute to this world? What are things are we always contributing to this world? Going back to what AD was talking about in terms of contributions from Brazil. Why don't we know about what's going on in Brazil? We have no excuse now because we have internet. We should be knowing what's going on. And even though we're located in London, located in England, we should be looking at what is going on all around the world. This is one of the reasons why we did the Black Consciousness Day um, in, on the 20, 19th and 20th of November. We're in England, but we are linking with our brothers and sisters globally around the world. Marcus Garvey couldn't do that back in the day because he didn't have internet. So we have no excuse not to be making connections with people all over the world. And this is the one of the benefits of one COVID, 
And one of the benefits of moving online, because we're making links with people all over the world. Unfortunately, it had to had it had to result in the death of George Floyd for black people to recognize that we need to learn history. Not just black people, but people all around the world. But we've had our own issues over here, and that should have been a a a a spark to learn our history. And we shouldn't have to wait until somebody dies before we take action and start taking control of learning our history. And that's one of the things that we must do. And don't wait for other people to tell us we should embrace and love our history because we have a great history to share. Um, and I want to, oh, I'm excited a little bit, excuse me. Um, so, Apeke, just a question for you, if that's all right. Um, uh, the title of our webinar is Black Unity and the Road to Success. So, could you just bring in a little bit of your views as um, link unity with history? So what does this history do to unite us? In what way is it a uniting force, our history? Uh, thank you very much. Um, first, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's spoken so far. I've learned a huge amount. Um, I think that um, the, the first thing is to understand I'm probably a little bit different, actually, from everybody else. I don't necessarily view the last 400 years as being um, a completely negative part of history. Um, I think that we've had the establishment of, of nations in Africa. I'm very proud uh, national of a country, but these are countries that didn't largely exist before. And of course, the resistance movements are things to be proud of. So there are a lot of things in the last 400 years that have been very empowering. And I think one of the, the great things that we were given, I think rather serendipitously, I said that right, is blackness, because blackness is of course the creation of this entire process. Before this process, there wasn't, there wasn't a need for a concept of blackness. And I think that when we talk about unity, it's about trying to give definition to global blackness and to understand the ways in which we are all having a shared experience and that is from two perspectives. The first angle of that shared experience is our shared origin stories in Africa. So we all have very similar cultural and religious um, basis, which means we experience the world in very similar ways because we have the same reference points. We have the same ontological and epistemological foundations about how knowledge is acquired and how we interact as people. So that means that there should be a connection between us because our lived experiences are from the same reference points. But I think as well, we also experience the world very similarly because of racism and because of anti-blackness. And in order to create economies of scale in terms of resistance, we have to understand each other and our connections. And that's where history comes in that if we understand the, that global blackness is a tool through which we can begin to break down some of these um, oppressions, then we are going to be extremely powerful because there is no other group of people that has this, actually. If you look at European communities, there is, of course, this concept of Western identity, but a lot of us on this call will also fit into Western identity, maybe begrudgingly, but you know, I grew up in the UK, so I am Western, but there's something about blackness that is exclusively um, ours and no other community has that. Europeanness, you know, a lot of people who are studying, um, you know, the history of, of Canada, how far back would they go? Would they go all the way back to England? I'm not sure. 
um, white Americans, when they study the history of America, would they feel the need to go back to understand German and Dutch communities and how those people lived before um, they emigrated to the United States? I don't know, but there is this enduring need by black people to, to find a common route, which is in Africa. And that's very unique. Global blackness is very unique. So I think that we, you know, if we can understand how we are connected and that is of course based in the past, then we can understand how we can go forward and meet the challenges that we unfortunately face because of racism. You know, I've picked up a word there that I am going to use over and over again, and that is global blackness being a tool. So a tool is something that we're, we're going to use to do something with, which I, which I absolutely love. So, so that's, that's equipping ourselves. So um, just bringing in Robin, what, what do you think we can do with this tool? I guess, you, you know, what's your view in, in terms of what Apeka said and, and what do you think we should be doing with this tool in terms of our global blackness going forward? Um, we have to become as um, interested in building black wealth and black power. And we have to consider things like entrepreneurship, building black business districts wherever we live, building not just neighborhoods, but building communities where there's not just places that we are, are eat and sleep, but places that we work as well. So places where we actually build businesses together, we build institutions together, no matter where we are, so that we're in a position to build wealth and pass it on. Excellent. It's it's like you read you read my mind. So you know, and and this is this is the reason why this is what we're trying to sort of pull together. So, you know, Apeka, you said it quite nicely. You know, it's a tool, uh, and we're using the 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 um you know blackness global blackness is a tool which is based on our shared history. So we're using this shared history to create this tool in order to create wealth. And it's, it's, it's ultimately, it's all about, when we talk about the road to success, it's ultimately about empowering ourselves and economic success. Um, so I just want to bring in Dele and just get your view in terms of this road to success. You know, just give your views about, in, and bring in the fact that we need to sort of be this collective and, and just have this shared knowledge uh, uh, of our history, empowering us. The biggest lesson that came through from my research and which comes through in the book uh, was the events in Haiti, which can be summed up as follows. The freedom that you win for yourself is so very different from the freedom that is granted to you. The Africans in Haiti were powerful because they freed themselves. They fought, they paid the price. And when you read the story of Haiti and the revolution, and you see how a people in bondage with no weapons, no foreign army to help them, they fought with everything they had, man, woman, and child, against professional armies simply driven by the desire for that freedom. That was the most powerful lesson that came through. 
they will be ashamed of the states of the countries of Africa at the moment, where with the advantage of, as has been mentioned, modern technology, communications networks, we're not able to organize ourselves effectively. So at the core of it is organization. They were able to do what they did because their leaders organized them and instilled belief in them, in their innate power. This is, what, this is the challenge to our generation, to organize ourselves. And discussions like this are a key part of that self-organization with a view to self-empowerment. I picked up a comment that one of the uh, guests was sending through, Juan Coleo Dutola, who was saying, how can you control, how can we control our narrative? Well, just as our people in Haiti did, they took it into their own hands. We write our own histories if they won't publish ours. We publish our own books if they won't publish ours. We control the narrative for ourselves first. And once we block out their narrative, knowing that what's inputs drive outputs, you must control the narrative that's going into your people's minds. We're left open at the moment. So this is a critical first step towards that reconnection, that restoration of belief and confidence, that imitation of the example set by our brothers and sisters in Haiti. That is our challenge, that is our responsibility. Thank you. Um, if I think about what happened in, in Haiti afterwards, so they, they liberated, like you said, and they got together, but. You know, I, I, I'm going to ask Lavinia this question, right? So we have to be very careful because we know what happened to Haiti afterwards. Haiti was bound up in debt, which it paid to France or is still paying to France, and therefore was never able to become the prosperous, successful nation that it should have been, despite the will of the people. So Lavinia, what should we be watching out for to make sure that as we move forward in this season, and take our own destiny or our own future in our hands and unite behind this sort of collective vision, what should we be watching out for? It's a good question. And I think reflection is as important as action. So whilst we're doing a lot of the work, we should also stop, pause and really reflect on like the things that we're doing. And I think currently um, what we're seeing is that there's a lot of um, very fast movements when it comes to just raising awareness around like injustices, racism, especially over social media. And a lot of these calls are not coming from um, the usual folks. So um, we've seen like organizations and um, I guess top industries kind of speak about the need to, to diversify and the need to actually have like black people in higher places. And I think what that actually comes from is a place of irrationality and actually thinking through what the actual structures. And I think sometimes we can get very caught up within those processes of, um, I guess, supporting 
um, tokenism and supporting things that don't actually have any tangible impacts. And I think one of the key things is really understanding what it is that we want as a community. So checking in, speaking exactly what we're doing here to really think about what's important to go forward and um, not just getting caught up in, in the lens of capitalism because it's, it's nonstop. And I think that illusion really um, drives us in a different direction towards true liberation for everybody. So I think it really is key to just take a step back, analyze, is if, if me supporting this thing is not connected to um, liberating black working class people, people who are over in the Caribbean, um, for example, I'm just drawing examples from, from different places, but I'm just trying to say that the heart of our motives, if it's not thinking about the liberation of all black people, and that's all black people, then let's just stop. Um, because that's not, it's not gonna further advance, it's only advancing an illusion and that illusion is just served to kind of um, maintain the order that we have. So yeah, I think it's just important to reflect and stop. Thank you. I'm just conscious of the time. I think we can, we can play carry on for another, another hour. So I've got a question for, for each of our panelists, if that's all right. So we've got um, you know, quite a few people listening. Um, I'm gonna go from a peke sort of you know, with my screen and go backwards, if that's all right. Um, what would you uh, um, uh, say to our listeners as a takeaway from, from this conversation that we've had? If there's anything that you think any of our listeners should, should, should sort of walk away from this session today uh, as, as a takeaway? Um, I think the first thing is that to not be despondent and to not feel too sad. There is a wealth of African history sources um, that date back to um, you know, communities such as the Sierra Leoneans and the Liberians that um, came because they also came um, with the ability to begin documenting. So we have wonderful histories that were written um, by them and by the, the communities that they, they started. Um, so, you know, for example, one of my favorite books is um, Samuel Johnson's History of the Yoruba, which is, um, you can get for 18 pounds on Amazon and that's written by um, a Nigerian um, in the 19th century. So there are a lot of wonderful books. It's about how do you actually access that information? And I hope that, you know, everybody on the panel here in our various ways of providing, you know, kind of signposts to how you can get that information. Um, the second thing I would say is there's a lot of wonderful Africanist scholarship that is going on now and there is some, and there has been really um, since the end of, of the Second World War, a lot of things coming out of the Ibadan school in, in Nigeria. Um, SOAS when it existed also had, um, you know, decent scholarship, but even more recently as, as well, you have a lot of um, poets um, such as Arjun Monet and, um, you know, even even people such as Audrey Lord who, who are writing essays that um, also have historical content as well. So there's a lot of different ways to access the history. Um, and I would say continue to patronize financially um, black um, authors and black historians and black organizations like those of, of all the people on the panel who are, you know, basically providing the signposts to that information. But it's still there, you know, I, I can see some of the panelists have wonderful libraries behind them. And I, and I have my own library I'm developing as well. So the books are there. Um, we need to write more and they, you know, they need to be proliferated more, but don't be too despondent. There's enough for us. There's enough out there for us to educate ourselves. Thank you. I was going to say uh, for everyone listening, we are going to stay behind uh, after we formalize this bit so for, to take all your questions. So do pop your questions into the Q&A 
section uh, of the of the uh, of Zoom, and we will be coming around to take questions. Um, so I'm just going to go on to Shemaine. Shemaine, it's what would you like um, our our guest here to to take away, not just in terms of of, of history, but just in terms of anything to do with you know, uh, um, their lives as black people and for our community as well. And greetings. So what I would want people to take away from this session today that there's amazing, like what was said earlier, there's work that's happening in the community. If you want to, if you have an interest in learning about your history and contributing to the change of this country, Google is your friend. We have no excuse now to say that we can't engage with people now. That narrative have to stop. So if you, there's people like myself, like Issue Studies, there's people like Andrew Mohammed doing some amazing work with our young people. There's people like Black History Walks that are doing amazing works as well. Professor Les Henry, there's people out there, not just in England, but in Europe as well. There are people doing tours. There's people in, in Amsterdam. There's people in Portugal. There's people in Paris, all around the globe doing works out there. You just got to find the people and make links with them. Yeah. And we have no excuse now to say that the information is not there. We have YouTube. We didn't have that back in the day. We didn't have internet. We didn't have um, Zoom and Microsoft Teams. So there's no reason why we're not educating people and sharing this information. So, and then somebody was talking about powerless. No, powerless, powerlessness is a mindset. We are powerful people. We have always been powerful people. During enslavement, we were powerful as well. It's all about the mindset. It's looking at changing the narrative and doing what we want to do. And it's very important that we must stop repeating these things about we're powerless and we can't do anything because we are doing it and it's being done. It may not be being highlighted in the mainstream, but a lot of this work is happening out there. It's just like what sister said, go and find these people, follow them uh, and support the work that they're doing. And we, then once you're supporting the people that are doing the works, then change can happen. Yeah, it's, we need that muscle behind you with people behind us to, and to encourage us to do the work and also to support the work that we do. And there are people doing, sharing the history in various different ways, whether it's um, presentations, whether it's arts, drama, puppetry, the information is going out there. It's just for you to make those links with those people and keep the information alive as well. And not just in Black History Month because black, our history is too, too vast to be held in, 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 in 30 days, 31 days. We have to be using this whole year um, this whole season to highlight our history as well. So I'll say to people is that make links, get contact details, and actually if there's something that's not being done out there in the community, you do it. Start waiting for other people to do it. You do it yourself and take responsibility for the learning of the people around you and also yourself and your family. Okay, so that's one of the main things I want to share and want people to take away from this. And also thank you to Okay, I think we've lost uh, Charmaine there for a second. To put these things together. Um, Dele, what would you say to our guests? Uh, what would you uh, provide as your takeaway? You're on mute. It's all about the narrative. You must control it. We must control it. Our story, when it's truly told, is a great one. It's powerfully, powerful and uplifting. Please read the story of Toussaint Louverture. Understand what happened in Haiti and we'll find all the inspiration that we need, that no obstacle is insurmountable. 
My book will come out in January. Spread the gospel. Thank you. <laughs> Lavinia, what would you say? Um, I'd echo everything that everyone has said before. Um, continue educating yourself and own the narratives. And I think um, history, I think someone said this earlier, history isn't just the past, it's also now. And um, I was very inspired by the talk that AD gave earlier. And it just, I guess, reinforced the importance of actually connecting to the diaspora. This work that we're doing in this island of Britain is redundant if we're not really thinking about the links outside and the experiences, because it's almost the antithesis of what we're trying to kind of work against, the erasure of narratives. And like, there are so much other problems that are connected to black people globally that we should be remembering and continuing to support and connect to and understand. So I think, yeah, for me, it's like reinforcing the importance of connecting across and not just inside. So um, yeah, we're doing it right, but let's just keep going. That's all. Thank you. And lastly, Robin. Um. For me, the takeaway is to understand that one of the reasons why we're having this discussion is because um, our history hasn't been kept alive the way it should have been kept alive, you see. And what I try and tell people to understand is if you can make history disappear today, it's easy to make it disappear yesterday, you see. So when it comes to dealing with black history and black things of interest, things that can happen today and disappear from the historical record. Does that make sense? All right, I'm gonna give you an example. You all got your mobile phones? Everyone's got their mobile phone? All right, as um, one of my colleagues, he's named the scientist, Leon Marshall, he has a, a, a punchline, make your smartphones smart. If you're listening, um, you're, I see there's 141 participants, make your smartphones smart. All right, pull up a picture of Princess Angela of Liechtenstein. All right, you've got your phones, do it now. Pull up that picture. Now you can, t I'll be able to tell in the next couple of minutes who's pulled up the picture by their response. Princess Angela of Liechtenstein. Okay, should we actually do it then? Absolutely do it. Princess who, sorry? Princess Angela of Liechtenstein. Yes. Right. What do you mean right? <laughs> you can then tell whether people have done it or not. Right, now can you see that that's not common knowledge? Yeah. Yeah. Right, now if you can make that disappear, you can make anything disappear. And so that's the main learning lesson that when it comes to dealing with history, we've got to stay on the ball. Um, just to give you a British example, um, Wales doesn't have a prime minister, as you know. Uh, Wales has a first minister. And when that first minister is busy, somebody then has to step in as the deputy. And that deputy is Vaughan Gething, V-A-U-G-H-A-N, Gething, G-E-T-H-I-N-G, the number two in Wales. If you get the opportunity, pull up a picture of him, 
And then ask yourself, how comes it's not common knowledge that this man is the number two in Wales who handles prime minister's question time when the first minister isn't there? And if you can make that disappear, you can make anything disappear. Yeah, that's my comment. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, um, we've come to the end of the more formal part uh, of our uh, session this evening. I want to say thank you very much again to all our panelists. You've given your time for free uh, this evening to have this important conversation. And I want to say thank you very much as well to the uh, to the uh, five people that contributed to the video that uh, that we put together. So Kushane, Martins, Shuri, Tekla, and of course, Quincy. So thank you very much. And finally, to our executive producer, the man behind the scenes who you cannot see, just making sure everything is working well. And also our sponsor to, to help us with the, the monies we'd had to pay to upgrade to webinar and other bits and bobs as well. So thank you very much. Uh, Wayne for being our sponsor and executive producer. Um, so I'm just going to hand over to Tash now. We do want to sort of spend a bit of time if that's okay with everyone. I appreciate the fact that people want to drop off, but we want to have uh, give uh, our uh, guests and attendees an opportunity to ask the panelists questions in a more informal setting, uh, I guess. So I'm just going to hand over to Tash. Hi, thank you. So, um, so yeah, so we've got about 10 or so minutes we've got lots of questions I think we've had about 14 15 questions come in um couple I've been able to copy and paste and answer um but I'm gonna gonna start with the first question that came in actually um it says it's from um Cole, um and it says it's really great to talk about black unity but how practical is that going to be so if not for COVID and the new Zoom, will we have even bothered to connect? Tell me how this can happen. I don't know who wants to answer that. There wasn't, it wasn't fired at anyone in particular. It was just... I'm happy to, I'm happy to answer it. We can have, we can have two, or, it matter, two or more. One. I'm, I'm happy to answer it. Hmm. Uh, again, I say all those who wonder whether it can be done, just think of Haiti and those people in the condition in which they were, with guns and dogs surrounding them all over. And they believed, it's all about belief, is an attitude of mind, is a state of mind. Once you believe and you organize, those are the two things, belief first amongst the leadership and then conscious organization, they had to do it in secret, undercover, we can organize in the open. So if they were able to achieve what they did against such odds, what excuse do we have? We, with the benefits of the lessons of history, precedents, tools and instruments available to us, what excuse can we possibly have to say that we cannot organize ourselves to make the difference? Is about joining the dots. That's what this program has been all about. Joining the dots, joining the past to our present, joining our dispersed peoples with each other, as you see on the screen. It's as simple as that. 
belief first, organize. Thank you. Charmaine, please. Um, the question, the, the question about unity. So I can only speak for myself. So um, unity is around me because I'm actually out there with people, engaging with people on the ground and was doing that for the past 13 years. And COVID is only maybe just go online. Even if, even now we're not face-to-face um, -face with people, we're still, our people that were supporting us all those years are still here and we're still supporting them. So you only see unity if you're not involved in those circles. And then you have to ask yourself, are you, why aren't you unifying with people that are around you? And what I, what I always say is that you're only gonna see the change if you contribute to that change. It's nothing's gonna happen until you contribute as well. So, um, for example, when we had to stop a lot of our events because we did events in the community and got, or not just in UK, in Europe and also um, abroad as well, um, we just went online and our numbers increased because we was able to reach a different demographic of people from all around the world. We, uh, when we do our webinars, we have people regularly coming in from, from um, Italy, Bermuda, Russia, all different places around the world. We have our introduction to Black Studies clause starting in January. We have people from all over the world, Bermuda, Italy, Ireland. So if you want to see unity, you have to do the work. It's not going to happen by just sitting in your house complaining about lack of unity. You have to do the work. And sometimes it takes sacrifice. You sacrificing your time, sacrificing um, your time with your family, sacrificing your resources, um, reaching with people. For example, you sponsorship to do this webinar today. You have to get it done. And you can only work with the resources that you have. Yeah, and you just have to start. We started off with limited resources and it's grown over the years. You have to start where you're at and then you get, and then you grow. And that's what we have to do. We have to just start somewhere. If we don't start, nothing's going to change. And our children are waiting for that change to start. Yeah, so that's why we, we had a lot of people thinking that I, I've got this, this attitude. We just got to just do it. The, the time is now, we just got to do it. The, the long talking and all oh, we can't do it and we can't come together. No, we have no comments about the powerlessness. It's a mindset. If you believe that you're powerless and can't do anything, that's what's stop you from doing it. But if you would know that and be inspired by your history, inspired by the great leaders that came before us to do things, that will force you to take action. And it's not just in from, from Haiti. We can look at what was we were doing in England. Yeah, look at the movements that we did in England because we all came together. So you've got the mangrove, what's, what's happening in the mangrove, how we came together, how different communities came together over in England to, um, to get change. And that work is still continuing to this day. Doesn't mean that because it happened in the past, it's not happening. There's lots of great works happening at this moment in time. We just got to make links and find those people, whether it's finding in a WhatsApp group, whether it's a Facebook group on this webinar, we just got to make links with people and get the work done. It has to be done now because our children are dying. Just like in Brazil, people are dying on a record scale and over here. So, and, and are negatively affected by the fact that we are not coming together because the whole point of today was talking about black unity. You can't unify if you're not coming together, but that has to come from you coming together with people has to be done. Um, I just wanted to say, Tash, before we get on to the next question, I thank Keno for her spoken word as well at the beginning, which we had to cut short. Uh, so thank you, Keno, for your spoken word as well. I always forget my sister. <laughs> so she worked very hard to put that together. Sorry, over to you, Tash. 
Thank you. So the next question is an interest, interesting Thank question. Thank you, Shemaine, for that, by the way. Yeah. yeah, no problem. So this question is, a, is, a, is an interesting one from uh, Dr. Joe. Um, how reasonable is it to keep asking why have they hidden these things from us as though it is white people's responsibility to educate us? I don't think that we was asking the question in that context, but the question remains, um, why is it reasonable for us to ask why? I think Apeka put up her hand. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was interested by this as well. I'm not sure what's hidden. Um, I've, I've never ever felt like it was hidden. I think that one of the things that we have to understand is actually the, the course in black consciousness in many ways starts with white consciousness. We need to understand what white consciousness is and what it sought to do. And it was a conquering concept, Western um, systems of control like capitalism or Christianity um, were all systems of control and it, and it, it annihilated everything, absolutely. But um, it sought to annihilate everything, absolutely. But first we must understand, I think, what conquest is and what um, white civilizations were trying to do when they came into Africa. And then from there, we can begin to understand how we can actually reconnect and reverse some of the things that were done. And one of the things that needs to really be understood, if you really want to take it you know, seriously, is you need to actually study the history of history. Because what we do today and we call history is a 19th century creation. It was in the 19th century that you have scholars in Europe come up and begin to have and begin to write these definitive histories that seek to say this is it you know this is history and that's modernist history and one of the reasons why it was so damaging for black consciousness is because a very key part of that 19th century European his, his, his history practice was the idea of progress and the idea of technological advancement that technological advancement meant progress and progress meant humanity so that means that they could legitimately leave African, Africa and Africans out of their conception of humanity because we were not progressing. So it means that by the time we enter the 20th century, what we call history, all these books that we now think of as history, just didn't actually mention black people. It wasn't that they sought to go and find the history and then burn it, no. It's just that when history as we know it was being written, black people were just not included. So we that seek to um, consume history through books and through these definitive books are actually have quite a colonized psychology because it is a colonized psychology that tells you that you need to look in books and things like that to receive your history because that's a 19th century creation. The main way that African societies used to preserve their history was through um, the lyric. So through origin stories that were told. And if you grow up for a lot of people, not in, not in maybe cosmopolitan Africa, but in rural Africa, they still have that. It's those people who move to the cities and are disconnected from village life that maybe lose that. But if you go to a lot of, you know, the majority of African, um, you know, uh, localities, they still have those connections, those traditions, the masquerades, I'm from Nigeria. And both of my parents are from different parts of Nigeria and both of them still have traditional masquerades, still have traditional courts 
Of course, those courts and the powers of those courts were largely diminished, particularly because 90,000 of the objects are in European museums. We're not going to talk about that today, but they're still there. They're absolutely still there. So I was, I was quite interested in, in, in that idea of the history having been hid, hidden. No, it's just our conception of history is a colonized conception of history that actually was the result of a 19th century historical academic practice that just left out African history. Um, but a lot of that was rectified. I would again direct you to the Ibadan series, history series of the 1950s to 70s, and to the wonderful histories that were written out of the first um, history department in, in Nigeria. Obviously I'm Nigerian, so I'm gonna you know, tout Nigerian history. Um, there's a fantastic work. A lot of them are out of print, and that's a big problem, and I don't doubt that. But whose fault is that? We have to look at ourselves. Why are we not trying to republish these things? Um, but they are available in the British Library. You can absolutely go and get them, and any university that has a decent history um, library or so social science library, humanities library, will also have these books. So no, I, I don't agree that there was any kind of um, necessarily hiding, just maybe just not including. And it was devastating, but it's there if you want to go and find it. Absolutely. Can I just, can I just qualify that a little? Um, I substantively agree with what Agbeke has said, uh, but I just need to qualify that a little in the context of geopolitics. It is a reality that history is, written, is hidden. That's how the power game is played. Even as now they are classified documents dealing with events that happened, that are hidden away, marked in secret files in Kew Gardens that you can't get access to. It's a reality. But I do agree with her that there are histories that are not hidden. And our failing, and I'm not beating up our people on this, sometimes it's a, it's a process. Our failing is that we've taken this long to start writing our own stories, largely because very often we were faced with so many challenges of just survival and existence. It's only now that some of us have the luxury of time and space and perhaps a little money to take time out of the struggle for chasing the dollars and the pounds to devote time, because it does require devotion of time, it requires a sacrifice from the rat race to make that space to do the research and then put it together for our people. So it's a mix. They, 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 you can't blame them for hiding it. It's part of the power game. When they write their versions of the history, people write it from a subjective perspective. Those questions that I dealt with in my paper would not have necessarily occurred to the European author, why are they interested in that? It is looking at it, these events from our perspective that we will start looking for that. And then the responsibility is on us to find the answers. And when we find the answers, to document it for posterity. So it's a mix of the two, I think. If, the, if I can just come back, just quickly. <laughs> I can just come back. Yeah, go on. I think the point I'm trying to make is that it depends what you, con what you what you consider to be history. If history for you is in the documentary and in the material, then yes, you know, anybody that decides to withhold from you 
um, something that records history in that kind of detached form is going to inhibit you in your search for history. But we know what happened. There's not a piece of paper that necessarily needs us to verify that. So I think I just come from a different historical practice, which begins with perhaps more of an idealistic, more of an M.A. Césaire negritude form of um, historical practice, which actually tries to relinquish that Rankian 19th century West, so German um, notion of history, which is that you must start from the place of knowing, whereas I believe that we have to start from the place of feeling. We know how we feel because we even even if no one tells it to us, when somebody looks at us, we feel the 400 years as, as was quoted in our in our body. And I think I it's powerful because, you know, one of the things that I, I once um, had in one of the lectures that I gave was, you know, an African-American who was very annoyed that people kept on asking her where she came from. And she would say, well, I'm African-American. And I said, but where are you from? You know, where are you really from? And she really was quite anxious about this question. And what the exercise that I gave her to do was to write her own origin story that began in the United States of America, her origin story that began on the slave ship, because the need to find an origin story before that is nice, but is, it's not a, a, an onus that's put on any other American um, um, community. You know, the, the, the first white people in America don't need to trace the origin stories anywhere else. Why do African-Americans need to? They're American. And that's just to say that I think the idea that we need to, yes, of course, Britain, of course, hides documents, not just about black history, about their own history. Um, but if that is going to inhibit us, then that is coming for me from a Eurocentric point of view. And I come from an African point of view, which is that history begins with or without how we feel, how we experience the world. And from that, we make it material through the writing and, and through the conversation, the dialectic that, that we're having here. So I think it's just perhaps me and... and uh, I, think, I think that is quite interesting here, the uh, factual side and the feeling side. I think that's really, I find that very, very interesting, actually. I, I hadn't heard that before. Um, I was just going to bring in Lavinia. I'm not sure. I think my Wi-Fi is all right. I think it's uh, a peckle that's disappeared. So Lavinia, have you been wanting to say something for a while? It's been really interesting to listen. Um, I don't think I have anything else to add um, because I think both um, Dele and Apieke raised really good points of views. Um, the question was how reasonable is it? I think it's, it's quite reasonable given that we are living in a society where we actively contribute taxes and our labor to institutions that withhold our history. You look at the British Museum, they are funded publicly. Um, we know what's inside of them. We know our history is misconstrued in certain ways. And I think it's reasonable that we ask and make the demands for our history to be taught more accurately. But I do believe that agency plays a huge role in this and that we have to take up um, space and create our own histories, be historians, be researchers, and also bring people together in those spaces to do that. So I agree with both points that were raised. I was gonna ask you Lavinia specifically about the work you're doing 
on the black curriculum. Just tell, tell us a little bit more about that specifically, because that's curriculum, isn't it? Basically. Yeah. Um, we're a social enterprise and our whole aim is to empower all students with a sense of identity. So what that means is being able to not only empower teachers to yeah, support them with the tools to teach history properly. So kind of thinking about um, the way in which history is often taught, like history classes, music classes. Um, it often starts from a, a place where the student is disconnected from that material. And so we give, we give training to teachers to be able to actually engage with the material in, in ways that are empowering um, for students, giving students that the idea, um, not only of the, the history, but also to take control of the classroom setting because they are equally um, as learners as valid in that space as the teacher is. So we kind of support teachers to be able to teach it, but also getting them to really think about the power dynamics within the classroom and how students can actually engage with their, their own history and claim that. Um, but then we also provide resources and material specifically on black British history. Um, and what does that mean? It's, it's not just British history on the island, it's also thinking about the connections of Britain um, as a global nation historically. Um, so we know that black people have been here since Roman times. And there's been um, a lot of great work that we've been able to do. So it's really highlighting um, not only stories of success, um, but also the tribulations that we face because people, young people will find their own ways to engage with black history in different ways. I know for myself, learning African studies at SOAS, I had to learn a lot of, I guess, the ways of suppression um, that Europeans had used on Africans to, for me to feel very ignited and very angry about that to want to learn more. And I think young people have to have that, I guess, different perspectives and nuances within what they're taught. So we aim to provide that through training to teachers, but also providing resources to schools. Um, and we also work with corporates as well to kind of give them that history as well. So that's Thank you. Tash, do you have any more questions? Well, I mean, we're at, you know, we're, we've gone over time now. So I think uh, there's, there's loads of questions. So I think, I don't know, I think it's probably a good time to wrap up. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, I, okay. That's, uh, I don't want to uh, overrun uh, as well. So, um, I'm going to say thank you very much, uh, everyone. Um, I'm sorry we couldn't get to all the questions, but um, you know, hopefully we'll go away and think about, you know, what's what next, what we do next. <laughs> I think we're just relieved that we've got through this one without any major technical uh, hitches. So I want to say thank you very much once again to everyone, uh, the panelists, everyone who's contributed. Um, and also as well uh, to our attendees and uh, participants. So everyone who's uh, signed up and uh, joined us this evening, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I can see a question, can we do this again? I think we have to explore the, quest uh, the, the questions and, uh, and uh, answers that we need to sort of provide, have a, a, another discussion on, on this theme as well, but we'll have a think about that. So. Uh, yes, thank you very much, everyone, and uh, good night. I, I, I feel I feel as if I don't want it to end, but <laughs> Tasha said it should end. All right, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. That's a woman.